Schlock Audio Tales. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with green scaly fabric, soft plush uppers, foam footbeds, non-slip grips on soles, and three white claws on each foot. One size fits most up to women's ten and a half, men's nine. Footbed measures ten and a half. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads a story, either a chapter of a novel or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. Look for our podcast near the old wishing well in the Blasted Heath, wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and at Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and Black Clock Audio Tales on YouTube. Welcome to Black Clock Audio Tales. Check out our new website over at www.pgttcm.com. Edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. The Chamber, Oppressive Gloom, Despair. Welcome to Part 1, Folklore of Great Britain. Join us at the end of the month when we talk about the Great Old Ones. The Fox and the Wolf There was once a fox and a wolf who set up house together in a cave near the seashore. Although you may not think so, they got on very well for a time, for they went out hunting all day, and when they came back at night they were generally too tired to do anything but to eat their supper and go to bed. They might have lived together always had it not been for the slyness and greediness of the fox, who tried to overreach his companion, who was not nearly so clever as he was. And this was how it came about. It chanced one dark December night that there was a dreadful storm at sea, and in the morning the beach was all strewn with wreckage. So as soon as it was daylight the two friends went down to the shore to see if they could find anything to eat. They had the good fortune to light on a great keg of butter which had been washed overboard from some ship on its way home from Ireland, where, as all the world knows, folks are famous for their butter. The simple wolf danced with joy when he saw it. Marrow bones and trotters, but we will have a good supper this night, cried he, licking his lips. Let us set to work at once and roll it up to the cave. But the wily fox was fond of butter, and he made up his mind that he would have it all to himself. So he put on his wisest look and shook his head gravely. Thou hast no prudence, my friend, he said reproachfully, else wouldst thou not talk of breaking up a keg of butter at this time of year, when the stackyards are full of good grain, which can be had for the eaten, and the farmyards are stocked with nice fat ducks and poultry. No, no, it behoveth us to have foresight, and to lay up in store for the spring, when the grain is all threshed, and the stackyards are bare, and the poultry have gone to market. So we will e'en bury the keg and dig it up when we have need of it. Very reluctantly, for he was thinner and hungrier than the fox, the wolf agreed to this proposal. So a hole was dug, and the keg was buried, and the two animals went off hunting, as usual. 
About a week passed by, then one day the fox came into the cave and flung himself down on the ground as if he were very much exhausted. But if anyone had looked at him closely, they would have seen a sly twinkle in his eye. Oh dear, oh dear, he sighed. Life is a heavy burden. What hath befallen thee? asked the wolf, who was ever kind and soft-hearted. Some friends of mine who live over the hills yonder are wanting me to go to a christening tonight. Just think of the distance that I must travel. But needst thou go? asked the wolf. Canst thou not send an excuse? A doubt that no excuse would be accepted, answered the fox, for they asked me to stand godfather. Therefore it behoveth me to do my duty and pay no heed to my own feelings. So that evening the fox was absent and the wolf was alone in the cave. But it was not to a christening that the sly fox went. It was to the keg of butter that was buried in the sand. About midnight he returned, looking fat and sleek, and well pleased with himself. The wolf had been dozing, but he looked up drowsily as his companion entered. "'Well, how did they name the bairn?' he asked. "'They gave it a queer name,' answered the fox. "'One of the queerest names that I ever heard.' "'And what was that?' questioned the wolf. "'Nothing less than Blazy Anne. Let me taste,' replied the fox, throwing himself down in his corner. And if the wolf could have seen him in the darkness, he would have noticed that he was laughing to himself. Some days afterwards the same thing happened. The fox was asked to another christening, this time at a place some twenty-five miles along the shore. And as he had grumbled before, so he grumbled again, but he declared that it was his duty to go, and he went. At midnight he came back, smiling to himself, and with no appetite for his supper. And when the wolf asked him the name of the child, he answered that it was a more extraordinary name than the other. Be na in hednan, be in its middle. The very next week, much to the wolf's wonder, the fox was asked to yet another christening, and this time the name of the child was Sigriot an Klar, Scrape the Staves. After that, the invitation ceased. Time went on, and the hungry spring came, and the fox and the wolf had their larder bare, for food was scarce, and the weather was bleak and cold. Let us go and dig up the keg of butter, said the wolf. Methinks that now is the time we need it. The fox agreed, having made up his mind how he would act, and the two set out to the place where the keg had been hidden. They scraped away the sand and uncovered it, but, needless to say, they found it empty. "'This is thy work,' said the fox angrily, turning to the poor innocent wolf. "'Thou hast crept along here while I was at the christenings, and eaten it up by stealth.' "'Not I,' replied the wolf. I have never been near the spot since the day that we buried it together. But I tell thee, it must have been thou, insisted the fox, for no other creature knew it was there except ourselves, and besides I can see by the sleekness of thy fur that thou hast fared well of late. Which last sentence was both unjust and untrue, for the poor wolf looked as lean and badly nourished as he could possibly be. So back they both went to the cave, arguing all the way, the fox declaring that the wolf must have been the thief, and the wolf protesting his innocence. Art thou ready to swear to it? 
said the fox at last, though why he asks such a question, dear only knows. Yes, I am, replied the wolf firmly, and standing in the middle of the cave, and holding one paw up solemnly, he swore this awful oath. If it be that I stole the butter, if it be, if it be, may a fateful fell disease fall on me, fall on me. When he was finished, he put down his paw, and turning to the fox, looked at him keenly, for all at once it struck him that his fur looked sleek and fine. It is thy turn now, he said. I have sworn, and thou must do so also. The fox's face fell at these words, for although he was both untruthful and dishonest now, he had been well brought up in his youth, and he knew that it was a terrible thing to perjure oneself and swear falsely. So he made one excuse after another, but the wolf, who was getting more and more suspicious every moment, would not listen to him. So, as he had not courage to tell the truth, he was forced at last to swear an oath also, and this was what he swore. If it be that I stole the butter, if it be, if it be, then let some most deadly punishment fall on me, fall on me. Worm, weakum, worm, weakum, worm, wee, worm, wee. After he had heard him swear this terrible oath, the wolf thought that his suspicions must be groundless, and he would have let the matter rest, but the fox, having an uneasy conscience, could not do so. So he suggested that as it was clear that one of them must have eaten the keg of butter, they should both stand near the fire, so that when they became hot, the butter would ooze out of the skin of whichever of them was guilty, and he took care that the wolf should stand in the hottest place. But the fire was big and the cave was small, and while the poor lean wolf showed no sign of discomfort, he himself, being nice and fat and comfortable, soon began to get unpleasantly warm. As this did not suit him at all, he next proposed that they should go for a walk, for, said he, it is now quite plain that neither of us can have taken the butter. It must have been some stranger who hath found out our secret. But the wolf had seen the fox beginning to go greasy, and he knew now what had happened, and he determined to have his revenge. So he waited until they came to a smithy, which stood at the side of the road, where a horse was waiting just outside the door to be shod. Then, keeping at a safe distance, he said to his companion, There is writing on that smithy door, which I cannot read as my eyes are failing. Do thou try to read it, for perchance it may be something twere good for us to know. And the silly fox, who was very vain, and did not like to confess that his eyes were no better than those of his friend, went close up to the door to try and read the writing and he chanced to touch the horse's fetlock, and, it being a restive beast, lifted its foot and struck out at once, and killed the fox as dead as a doornail. And so, you see, the old saying in the good book came true after all. Be sure you're seeing. Catherine Crackernuts There was once a king whose wife died, leaving him with an only daughter whom he dearly loved. The little princess's name was Velvet Cheek, and she was so good and bonny and kind-hearted that all her father's subjects loved her. 
but as the king was generally engaged in transacting the business of the state, the poor little maiden had rather a lonely life, and often wished that she had a sister with whom she could play and who would be a companion to her. The king, hearing this, made up his mind to marry a middle-aged countess whom he had met at a neighboring court who had one daughter named Catherine, who was just a little younger than the princess Velvet Cheek, and who, he thought, would make a nice playfellow for her. He did so, and in one way the arrangement turned out very well, for the two girls loved one another dearly and had everything in common, just as if they had really been sisters. But in another way it turned out very badly, for the new queen was a cruel and ambitious woman, and she wanted her own daughter to do as she had done, and make a grand marriage, and perhaps even become a queen. And when she saw that Princess Velvet Cheek was growing into a very beautiful young woman, more beautiful by far than her own daughter, she began to hate her, and to wish that in some way she would lose her good looks. For, thought she, what suitor will heed my daughter as long as her stepsister is by her side? Now among the servants and retainers at her husband's castle there was an old henwife, who, men said, was in league with the evil spirits of the air, and who was skilled in the knowledge of charms and philters and love potions. Perhaps she can help me to do what I seek to do, said the wicked queen, and one night, when it was growing dusk, she wrapped a cloak round her and set out to this old henwife's cottage. "'Send the lassie to me to-morrow morning ere she hath broken her fast,' replied the old dame when she heard what her visitor had to say. "'I will find out a way to mar her beauty.' And the wicked queen went home content. Next morning she went to the princess's room while she was dressing and told her to go out before breakfast and get the eggs that the henwife had gathered. "'And see,' added she, "'that thou dost not eat anything ere thou goest, "'for there is nothing that maketh the roses bloom "'on a young maiden's cheeks like going out fasting "'in the fresh morning air.' Princess Velvet Cheek promised to do as she was bid and go and fetch the eggs. But as she was not fond of going out of doors before she had had something to eat, and as, moreover, she suspected that her stepmother had some hidden reason for giving her such an unusual order, and she did not trust her stepmother's hidden reasons, she slipped into the pantry as she went downstairs, and helped herself to a large slice of cake. Then, after she had eaten it, she went straight to the henwife's cottage and asked for the eggs. "'Lift the lid of that pot there, your highness, and you will see them,' said the old woman, pointing to the big pot standing in the corner, in which she boiled her hen's meat. The princess did so, and found a heap of eggs lying inside, which she lifted into her basket, while the old woman watched her with a curious smile. "'Go home to your lady mother, Hinny,' she said at last, "'and tell her for me to keep the press door. Better snip it.' The princess went home, and gave this extraordinary message to her stepmother, wondering to herself the while what it meant. But if she did not understand the henwife's words, the queen understood them only too well, for from them she gathered that the princess had in some way prevented the old witch's spell doing what she intended it to do. 
So next morning, when she sent her stepdaughter once more on the same errand, she accompanied her to the door of the castle herself, so that the poor girl had no chance of paying a visit to the pantry. But as she went along the road that led to the cottage, she felt so hungry that when she passed a party of country folk picking peas by the roadside, she asked them to give her a handful. They did so, and she ate the peas, and so it came about that the same thing happened that had happened yesterday. The henwife sent her to look for the eggs, but she could work no spell upon her because she had broken her fast. So the old woman bade her go home again and give the same message to the queen. The queen was very angry when she heard it, for she felt that she was being outwitted by this slip of a girl, and she determined that although she was not fond of getting up early, she would accompany her next day herself and make sure that she had nothing to eat as she went. So next morning she walked with the princess to the henwife's cottage, and, as had happened twice before, the old woman sent the royal maiden to lift the lid off the pot in the corner in order to get the eggs. And the moment that the princess did so, off jumped her own pretty head, and on jumped that of a sheep. Then the wicked queen thanked the cruel old witch for the service that she had rendered to her, and went home quite delighted with the success of her scheme, while the poor princess picked up her own head, and put it into her basket along with the eggs, and went home crying, keeping behind the hedge all the way, for she felt so ashamed of her sheep's head that she was afraid that anyone saw her. Now, as I told you, the princess's stepsister, Catherine, loved her dearly, and when she saw what a cruel deed had been wrought on her, she was so angry that she declared that she would not remain another hour in the castle. For, said she, if my lady mother can order one such deed to be done, who can hinder her ordering another? So methinks twere better for us both to be where she cannot reach us. So she wrapped a fine shawl round her poor stepsister's head, so that none could tell what it was like, and putting the real head in the basket, she took her by the hand, and the two set out to seek their fortunes. They walked and they walked, till they reached a splendid palace, and when they came to it, Catherine made as though she would go boldly up and knock at the door. "'I may perchance find work here,' she explained, "'and earn enough money to keep us both in comfort.' But the poor princess would fain have pulled her back. "'They will have nothing to do with thee,' she whispered, "'when they see that thou hast a sister with a sheep's head.' "'And who is to know that thou hast a sheep's head?' asked Catherine. "'If thou hold thy tongue and keep the shawl well round thy face, and leave the rest to me.' So up she went and knocked at the kitchen door, and when the housekeeper came to answer it, she asked her if there was any work that she could give her to do. "'For,' said she, "'I have a sick sister who is sore troubled with the migraine in her head, and I would fain find a quiet lodging for her where she could rest for the night.' "'Dost thou know aught of sickness?' asked the housekeeper, who was greatly struck by Catherine's soft voice and gentle ways. "'Aye, do I,' replied Catherine, "'for when one's sister is troubled with the migraine, one has to learn to go about softly and not to make a noise.' 
Now it chanced that the king's eldest son, the crown prince, was lying ill in the palace of a strange disease, which seemed to have touched his brain, for he was so restless, especially at nights, that someone had always to be with him to watch that he did himself no harm, and this state of things had gone on so long that everyone was quite worn out, and the old housekeeper thought that it would be a good chance to get a quiet night's sleep if this capable-looking stranger could be trusted to sit up with the prince. So she left her at the door, and went and consulted the king. And the king came out and spoke to Catherine, and he too was so pleased with her voice and her appearance that he gave orders that a room should be set apart in the castle for her sick sister and herself. And he promised that if she would sit up that night with the prince, and see that no harm befell him, she would have, as her reward, a bag of silver pennies in the morning. Catherine agreed to the bargain readily, for, thought she, twill always be a night's lodging for the princess, and for by that a bag of silver pennies is not to be got every day. So the princess went to bed in the comfortable chamber that was set apart for her, and Catherine went to watch by the sick prince. He was a handsome, comely young man, who seemed to be in some sort of fever, for his brain was not quite clear, and he tossed and tumbled from side to side, gazing anxiously in front of him, and stretching out his hands as if he were in search of something. And at twelve o'clock at night, just when Catherine thought that he was going to fall into a refreshing sleep, what was her horror to see him rise from his bed dress himself hastily, open the door, and slip downstairs, as if he were going to look for somebody. "'There'll be something strange in this,' said the girl to herself. "'Methinks I had better follow him and see what happens.' So she stole out of the room after the prince, and followed him safely downstairs. And what was her astonishment to find that apparently he was going some distance?' for he put on his hat and riding-coat, and, unlocking the door, crossed the courtyard to the stable, and began to saddle his horse. When he had done so, he led it out and mounted, and, whistling softly to a hound which lay asleep in a corner, he prepared to ride away. "'I must go to and see the end of this,' said Catherine bravely, "'for methinks he is bewitched. These be not the actions of a sick man.' So, just as the horse was about to start, she jumped lightly on its back, and settled herself comfortably behind its rider, all unnoticed by him. Then the strange pair rode away through the woods, and as they went, Catherine pulled the hazelnuts that nodded in great clusters in her face. For, said she to herself, dear only knows where next I may get anything to eat. On and on they rode, till they left the greenwood far behind them, and came out on an open moor. Soon they reached a hillock, and here the prince drew rein, and stooping down cried in a strange, uncanny whisper, Open, open, green hill, and let the prince and his horse and his hound enter. And, whispered Catherine quickly, let his lady enter behind him. Instantly, to her great astonishment, the top of the knoe seemed to tip up, 
leaving an aperture large enough for the little company to enter, and it closed gently behind them again. They found themselves in a magnificent hall, brilliantly lighted by hundreds of candles stuck in sconces round the walls. In the center of this apartment was a group of the most beautiful maidens that Catherine had ever seen, all dressed in shimmering ball gowns, with wreaths of roses and violets in their hair, and there were sprightly gallants also, who had been treading a measure with these beauteous damsels to the strains of fairy music. When the maidens saw the prince, they ran to him and led him away to join their revels. And at the touch of their hands, all his languor seemed to disappear, and he became the gayest of all the throng, and laughed and danced and sang, as if he had never known what it was to be ill. As no one took any notice of Catherine, she sat down quietly on a bit of rock to watch what would befall, and as she watched, she became aware of a wee-wee Bernie playing with a tiny wand quite close to her feet. He was a bonny-bit bairn, and she was just thinking of trying to make friends with him when one of the beautiful maidens passed, and looking at the wand said to her partner in a meaning tone, three strokes of that wand would give Catherine's sister back her pretty face. Here was news indeed. Catherine's breath came thick and fast, and with trembling fingers she drew some of the nuts out of her pocket and began rolling them carelessly towards the child. Apparently he did not get nuts very often, for he dropped his little wand at once and stretched out his tiny hands to pick them up. This was just what she wanted, and she slipped down from her seat to the ground and drew a little nearer to him. Then she threw one or two more nuts in his way, and when he was picking these up she managed to lift the wand unobserved and to hide it under her apron. After this she crept cautiously back to her seat again, and not a moment too soon, for just then a cock crew, and at the sound the whole of the dancers vanished, all but the prince, who ran to mount his horse, and was in such a hurry to be gone that Catherine had much ado to get up behind him before the hillock opened and he rode swiftly into the outer world once more. But she managed it, and as they rode homewards in the grey morning light, she sat and cracked her nuts and ate them as fast as she could, for her adventures had made her marvellously hungry. When she and her strange patient had once more reached the castle, she just waited to see him go back to bed, and begin to toss and tumble as he had done before. Then she ran to her stepsister's room, and finding her asleep, with her poor misshapen head lying peacefully on the pillow, she gave it three sharp little strokes with the fairy wand, and lo and behold the sheep's head vanished, and the princess's own pretty one took its place. In the morning the king and the old housekeeper came to inquire what kind of night the prince had had. Catherine answered that he had had a very good night, for she was very anxious to stay with him longer, for now that she had found out that the elfin maidens who dwelt in the green know had thrown a spell over him, she was resolved to find out also how that spell could be loosed. And fortune favored her, 
for the king was so pleased to think that such a suitable nurse had been found for the prince, and he was also so charmed with the looks of her stepsister, who came out of her chamber as bright and bonny as in the old days, declaring that her migraine was all gone, and that she was now able to do any work, that the housekeeper might find for her, that he begged Catherine to stay with his son a little longer, adding that if she would do so, he would give her a bag of gold bonnet pieces. So Catherine agreed readily, and that night she watched by the prince as she had done the night before, and at twelve o'clock he rose and dressed himself, and rode to the fairy No, just as she expected him to do, for she was quite certain that the poor young man was bewitched and not suffering from a fever, as everyone thought he was. And you may be sure that she accompanied him, riding behind him all unnoticed, and filling her pockets with nuts as she rode. When they reached the fairy No, he spoke the same words that he had spoken the night before. Open, open, green hill, and let the young prince in with his horse and his hound. And when the green hill opened, Catherine added softly, and his lady behind him. So they all passed in together. Catherine seated herself on a stone and looked around her. The same revels were going on as yesternight, and the prince was soon in the thick of them, dancing and laughing madly. The girl watched him narrowly, wondering if she would ever be able to find out what would restore him to his right mind. And as she was watching him, the same little bairn who had played with the magic wand came up to her again, only this time he was playing with a little bird. And as he played, one of the dancers passed by, and turning to her partner said lightly, Three bites of that birdie would lift the prince's sickness, and make him as well as he ever was. Then she joined in the dance again, leaving Catherine sitting upright on her stone, quivering with excitement. If only she could get that bird, the prince might be cured. Very carefully she began to shake some nuts out of her pocket and roll them across the floor towards the child. He picked them up eagerly, letting go the bird as he did so, and in an instant Catherine caught it and hid it under her apron. In no long time after that, the cock crew and the prince and she set out on their homeward ride. But this morning, instead of cracking nuts, she killed and plucked the bird, scattering its feathers all along the road, and the instant she gained the prince's room, and had seen him safely into bed, she put it on a spit in front of the fire and began to roast it. And soon it began to frizzle and get brown, and smell deliciously, and the prince in his bed in the corner opened his eyes, and murmured faintly, how I wish I had a bite of that birdie. When she heard the words, Catherine's heart jumped for joy, and as soon as the bird was roasted, she cut a little piece from its breast and popped it into the prince's mouth. When he had eaten it, his strength seemed to come back somewhat, for he rose on his elbow and looked at his nurse. Oh, if I had but another bite of that birdie, he said, and his voice was certainly stronger. So Catherine gave him another piece, and when he had eaten that, he sat right up in bed. Oh, if I had but a third bite of that birdie, 
he cried. And now the color was coming back into his face, and his eyes were shining. This time Catherine brought him the whole of the rest of the bird, and he ate it up greedily, picking the bones quite clean with his fingers. And when it was finished, he sprang out of bed and dressed himself, and sat down by the fire. And when the king came in the morning, with his old housekeeper at his back, to see how the prince was, he found him sitting, cracking nuts with his nurse, for Catherine had brought home quite a lot in her apron pocket. The king was so delighted to find his son cured, that he gave all the credit to Catherine Crackernuts, as he called her, and he gave orders at once that the prince should marry her. For, said he, a maiden who is such a good nurse is sure to make a good queen. The prince was quite willing to do as his father bade him, and, while they were talking together, his younger brother came in, leading Princess Velvet-Cheek by the hand, whose acquaintance he had made but yesterday, declaring that he had fallen in love with her, and that he wanted to marry her immediately. So it all fell out very well, and everybody was quite pleased, and the two weddings took place at once. And, unless they be dead sinsign, the young couples are living yet. Poem Times to Sneeze Sneeze on Monday, sneeze for a letter. Sneeze on Tuesday, something better. Sneeze on Wednesday, kiss a stranger. Sneeze on Thursday, sneeze for danger. Sneeze on Friday, sneeze for sorrow. Sneeze on Saturday, see your sweetheart tomorrow. <laughs>